All right, you crazy s Time to finally talk about Barbenheimer. The time has finally come. The event of the season, the event of the summer, same difference. Gentlemen, we have all finally completed the task at hand. First things first. Andrew, you saw both of these movies twice. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Look on Matt's face. I... I enjoyed them, but six hours of Oppenheimer's a lot. Actually, maybe not too much. Uh, I don't know if this is going to be a controversial opinion, but you know, I did bar, I did Barbie, then up, and then up, and then Barbie, and uh, it does make a difference what order you see it. But it lived up to the hype. I'm almost scared to share my opinions at this point, but hey, man, it was fun. So what now? Which order do you prefer? Up then Barbie, <laughs> you know, it's like. The thing with the movies, it's like Barbie's a party. Oppenheimer is, you know, supposed to be serious. And you got to leave on a high note. I saw people, you know, we'll get into it. Just like, I was devastated when I left up. Oh, okay. Yeah, you might have been. But um, yeah, Barbie's a party. Now, did you see it in IMAX either time? So the first time I saw Oppie was 70 millimeter. Ooh, and then the second time was IMAX. And I have to say, like, I honestly didn't notice the 70 millimeter was awesome and big IMAX better audio. Um, do I have a recommendation? I guess it depends if you're going to op to go see the bomb or if you're going to see three hours of men talking in rooms. So it really is up to you. The sequel to last year's women talking men talking. <laughs> <laughs> I take it y'all didn't like it. Oh no, I loved it. Wait, Oppenheimer or the or the IMAX part of the equation? Oh, op. Oh no, I I definitely liked it. I mean, I I might need to wait until the end of the recording to figure out where it stacks with sort of my listing of all of his other movies. So far, both movies and and obviously I'll lean more into Oppenheimer for this first half. Both movies I walked away feeling like, wow, I saw two really good movies that can stand on their own legs which you know so far with a lot of other things i've seen this year even including the flash like i can't say that and these two movies really had a moment to shine oppenheimer straight up did not need to be three hours long that's the thing i keep telling people like first thing i like the movie but it didn't need to be that long you know we'll, we'll nitpick but i know there's a few aspects here and there, like with his extramarital affairs, I feel like the way those were handled, on one hand, there was at least one moment, and sorry listeners, there are going to be some spoilers if you haven't participated in the phenomenon that is Barbenheimer yet, then for goodness sake, go do it as soon as you can. I know opening weekend and even the second weekend theaters were completely sold out. I know the theater that Andrew and I and our... Uh, uh, what the hell's the word? What, what's Partners? The expression? Partners. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, I, I was going to say significant others, but that that's even better. <laughs> like, the theaters that we went to, I was monitoring them one day, and then not even 24 hours later, they both just slowly filled up. Um, so it was sort of like, okay, I, we need to, like, get these now, otherwise there's not going to be four seats in a row, which is what happened with Barbie, but that's okay. We made it work. But no, Barbie is on track to uh, to make a billion dollars next week. Barbie is insane. They're at seven fifty right now. Wow. So if they keep this growth up, they're gonna hit the big B. 
Wow. <laughs> oh my God. Well, uh, Matt, thoughts on? I, I know you kind of gave some of your thoughts last week on Oppenheimer, but now that we're now that we've all seen it, what's what are your thoughts? Did not need to be three hours. Did not need to be shot exclusively in IMAX film and then cut down to size for normal size screens. I felt disappointed by the bomb drop. I thought it was just you're building up to this huge explosion and it's just like, oh, fire, quiet fire, pretty fire. Oh, it's over. Cool. I just spent on $8 extra on IMAX for this shit. Um, I did think the sound design was amazing. Um, just feeling that that bass pulse through you yeah. was really good. They did. I do. I will admit that they had good um, contrast between like moments where you expect loudness, like especially with the bomb drop, you expect it to be loud, but it's quiet. And then it hits you. That was good. That was very good artistic direction. Killian Murphy is a strong, strong contender for best actor. Oscar. I don't think that he need Christopher Nolan needed to stack the cast as much as he did. Because you see a bunch of these people for like two minutes where he's easily could have just had somebody else in the role and it would not have done anything different. It would have cut your budget down significantly and you could have really made more money than you already did. Like no one went to this movie to see Josh Peck. Nobody went to this no movie to, to see this... the star of Sky High be a nerd. No one went to this movie to see uh, Gary Oldman as Truman. Honestly, no one did. Well, not even well, you, Ryan. Other than yeah, not, I, I not no, even, I did. Not even you. <laughs> don't contradict me while I'm speaking, Ryan. We know you didn't do it for that. Like the draw of this movie was Christopher Nolan, and to an extent, Killian Murphy. I think Benny Safdie did an amazing job. I really appreciated his because he had a, a substantial role. Yeah, he had meat to it. So that's why he did well is because he had something to play with. Overall, I do think that. Oppenheimer was great. I really enjoyed it. I thought it was a very um, engrossing movie. Like the pacing was so well done that it, even though it did feel long in the tooth, it didn't feel like three hours long. Like it felt like, okay, after the bomb drops, oh, we're still going. <laughs> cool. Um, let's, <laughs> let's wrap this up. But not in a way that I was like disappointed that it's like, okay, I got shit to do. It's just like, okay, where is this going? Can can we finish, please? I, I want to end. Um, I, I did think it gave a good sense of just like, like the entire time I was thinking, like how, how does he as a person like wrestle with the fact that his creation has just killed this many people and just the, the complexities and the philosophy of it, all the moral quandary that, J. Robin Oppenheimer must have dealt with and everything. And it's like, oh, you made these science nerds really cool for a little bit. Um, I'm forgetting things that I will probably interject with later on. But overall, I think it was very well done. Um, it's I understand that Japan is not exactly happy with this movie. Mm, okay. Um, but I do think that it was a good return to like accessible not overly up in my Christopher Nolan majesty movie that Nolan made. It's accessible. It's again, it's long, but I think it's well done also. Oh, that's what I was going to mention. Um, the reason that I did purchase, I think I mentioned this before is the reason I did purchase the, uh, IMAX ticket is because everybody on Reddit was like, Oh, it's so worth it. When that bomb drops, it was the most beautiful thing I ever seen on screen. Oh my God. And like, 
okay, you people are driving three hours for it. Let's go. Let's change my ticket to an IMAX ticket, which I did, which threw off my schedule for the day. But that's neither here nor there. Um, but then I saw it, and it's like looking back on those comments, they're very in my mind. They're just justifying their purchase. As in, I drove three hours, so I'm going to say that I enjoyed it. Otherwise, I look like an idiot. Um, I think if you have to drive maybe an hour to get to an IMAX screen, that's not that bad. An hour what for a, a three-hour movie, that's not bad. That's I would say if you really want to see it in IMAX, that's worth it. But three hours for a three to, to see that for that one 30-second snippet of the bomb, it's not worth it, in my opinion. Like it's it's fire effects. Like again, and I will use this analogy till the day I die. You would have had a better experience watching Michael Bay's Transformers in IMAX 3D than had you watched this. Just it wasn't enough bang for the buck. I think the movie itself absolutely worth the hype, but the bomb moment, ah, ah, you hit it right in the nose. I think you know. What did we always joke about and what was the hype about? Like the poster has an explosion, you know, like the whole trailers were the countdown. Um, it was, it was, it was, I have to say it might have, it was definitely one of the stronger parts of the movie, the buildup, very tense, even on the second viewing when it was counting down and Josh Peck's hand is trembling. Like my heart was beating just as fast as it was the first time. I have not felt my heart beat that fast in a theater in a long time. So I have to give Christopher Nolan props for that. Like, I mm -hmm. think he really, but the explosion, I didn't want to tell myself, like, don't be let down by it. This is the movie event of the year. And it's like, yeah, no, like, I I am obsessed with the discussion around the explosion because you're right. Like, if we were advertised that this was going to be a political thriller with, um, the explosion like was going to be in the movie, but they didn't tease it. Like what if the Oppenheimer background is him looking over to the lab or something like that, but Nope, you advertise it with the explosion and it did not give the sense of scale. And even the boom was nice and loud, but like I wanted to be blown away. And yeah. Yeah. I, like you could have like... looked at the poster and gotten kind of the same effect really <laughs> yeah yeah just, so... just look at the poster and have someone like say boom really loudly behind you and shake you <laughs> yeah it's after like... after you run a mile to get the heartbeat effect you run a mile look at the poster have someone shout boom at you there you go that's that's the bomb moment <laughs> yeah I, I wonder what nolan's gonna say afterwards when they start asking him like in a year or two like why didn't you use cgi or like you know why was the sound delayed and he's in a tour damn it yeah. So, you know, I think he didn't know how to build suspense in the third act. I'm not that offended at the third act. And the second time around, I'm like, well, like the first time I was like, why is Robert Downey Jr. half of the movie? And it's like the second time around, I, I was more OK with it. I, I kind of paid attention more to the to the drama. But it was just uh, Nolan didn't know how to build up the suspense because he's talking to the prosecutor in the little room. And then, like, he imagines the bomb, like, the room lighting up and, like, the bombs going off again, basically. And it's just, like, if that you didn't have that effect with the room lighting up, like, that was supposed to be the climax. But he needed to tell us, like, Hoppy's having his PTSD again. Like, uh, it just didn't work to build up the suspense. So, like, after the nuke, um, there was this, and, like, it's not like he w went to jail, you know, like, he just lost his security clearance. So, like, I think Nolan 
maybe bit off more than he could chew. If like <laughs> there's no big action piece to wrap it up, uh, Nolan almost doesn't know what to do. So yeah. I think the third act was definitely the, I'll say most difficult part of the movie, but um, everything else was pretty good. Like I think up to build up to the bomb the whole time you're seeing the pieces fit together. You have great performances. Uh, Kelly Murphy is great at Oppenheimer. I thought every actor was good. You know, I did have some, the Florence Pugh sex scenes at first were laughable. Second time around, I'm like, oh, be an adult. Don't think they're funny. Like, and they weren't <laughs> too, like, I feel like it wasn't too cringy. I, I, the first idea of him, her saying the line when they're in bed, like, okay. That's what I was going to bring up is oh. that I know, Ryan, you were anticipating when are they going to say it? But also, like, I think all of India is mad at that line because they, <laughs> they use the sacred Hindu text, I believe. It, I don't know which exactly book, but, like, all of India is mad that, like, you you really did that? You did that to our sacred text? Yeah. Like, you had like, you had our you had our, our sacred text with Killian Murphy and Florence Pubes? Just boom. Everywhere? Yeah. <laughs> I was, I, I was, you know, making the lewd comment that, like, she wasted her titties for this, like, and I was told that she did bear her chest in another movie, but it just felt cheap. I mean, she bears her, her chest on, on the red carpet all the time. It's not, it's like, it's literally <laughs> yeah. like if you just open any red carpet coverage, you've seen them before. Sure. But like, I just feel like this is not it, part of the, this is not what made this the movie event of the summer. <laughs> no, definitely. Like I, I, I now realize that, but it's like Nolan's like, I remember reading the interviews like, oh, I'm so nervous. And like. Given not like you know he's never done a sex scene even though there was one in the Dark Knight Rises where you know they kiss and they get they they that was the po- that was post coital though like <laughs> yeah so like the actual act of it it's like you can really tell like you can see Nolan's nerves and it's just like he's like if I don't show nudity then it's not gonna feel raw and real so that's I... such a Tommy Wiseau thing to say <laughs> oh god like, if you've seen I I I'm pretty sure this is. This is most likely what he the actual interaction was. And like if you read the disaster artist, it's the same thing. But in the disaster artist movie, Tommy is like, I have to show my ass, otherwise how do they know it's real Hollywood movie? Oh god. It's no Mickey Mouse shit. So <laughs> you, I, you pulled a you pulled a Tommy there. Oh god, and I haven't even seen it. So uh he maybe he was right then. Great minds think alike, right? So Nolan, the second time around too, like the sex scene in the interview room. Uh, you know, the first time I saw it, there was some chuckles in the theater, but um, I like the idea behind it. Like you're talking mm-hmm. about cheating on your wife in front of her. It was a little clunky, but um, otherwise there was nothing else like unintentionally cringy. You know, I think the first time me and Rachel were laughing that Einstein was like a little goofball and like, oh, oh you know, or like when he teleports at the end when the behind the taxi. So like we we're having chuckles about that. So like, I still think like, he must like he almost needs like an editor to watch it and say like this unintentional comedy is going to break the immersion of the serious political thriller like there was a few things that were in for laughs like don't bomb kyoto because of my honeymoon there like but like oh my it's god the, it's the unintentional things that like the internet is going to laugh at that nolan has no eye for like he doesn't know that like that looks great and it's just like no like you're the people who are going to watch this movie, your audience, or the majority of them are going to laugh at this. So, um, I think Nolan is far from the perfect director, but uh, was he the right guy to do this movie? And if you said, if you put you know the ingredients of this movie into a lab, like if you said, like who's gonna 
it's it's got that Nolan tone. Like, you know, if you told somebody if some you if somebody didn't know who directed the Dark Knight and saw this, like it evokes the same feelings and not, you know, wordful enough to describe like the tone, but like Nolan's Nolan's fingerprints were on this. And I think, you know, he has such his generic recipe for success, but it works. So I have to say, um rambling on, I did enjoy it. I'm trying to think of where to pick up because both of you, I mean, both of you said everything that I thought with the film, everything from the explosion, which I was also on very, I, I was underwhelmed. I was very conflicted walking out of the theater. And when Drew asked me what I thought, I was like struggling for an answer. I still would justify seeing it in IMAX just because between the sound design and getting the massive detail of like all, all those little moments where you see sort of like, I don't know, wisps of energy or dust particles or, you know, simulations of the cosmos, whatever those, those are. And then combine that with the score and the, you know, science subject matter. I mean, those are all things that I frankly fall for in movies and I kind of miss like the last movie that stands out to me that really, really embraced that was like the theory of everything, um, where they really wanted to somehow combine the awe and majesty of physics and the complexity of it, and then combine that with kind of this erratic music that perfectly matches sort of the complexity of the science, but then also combine visuals of space itself, whether it's digital or, you know, plucked straight from the Hubble telescope. And I thought it... it nailed all of that perfectly that being said in terms of the actual explosion you're like okay fine but the effect is still there especially andrew you pointed it out and they do it twice in the movie where first oppenheimer has that ptsd from post hiroshima and nagasaki where he's met with the audience and people start like their skin starts to flake off and it's it i'm relieved that they didn't have to go so far as to sort of give you the graphic view because I, I remember at some point last week I was at work and I was scrolling around on Twitter and somebody that I followed recommended, look, if all of you are up in arms over the fact that Oppenheimer didn't show Hiroshima and Nagasaki, guess what? There's plenty of material out there, plenty of content, if you will, that documents what happened that day and and the you know unspeakable horrors that those bombs let loose onto you know two major cities in japan and there was i know some anime back in like i don't know if it was the 80s or the 90s that did show the effects of the atomic bomb drop and it like it disturbed me and haunted me for like the rest of that day because it went completely graphic with what you saw and you didn't you didn't anticipate it so I'm I'm relieved that they didn't go that far, but to incorporate that, you know, bright blinding light with both the moment with the American audience and then later during the sort of climactic showdown with Jason Clark in the interrogation room, tonally that, that fit. It was perfect. It was totally in line with what had sort of been set up through the movie already. After the bomb fell, I did feel like, okay, how are you going to tie this up? Having the whole... Senate confirmation for Robert Downey Jr.'s character, um, I thought was done pretty well, especially given the fact that, you know, this whole time, you, you know, you're 
led to believe that Oppenheimer was so just racked with his own guilt, but then also the country that looked at him as the man of the hour turned on him, and who were the people that ultimately turned around to defend him? Other scientists. And I thought that was something that was powerful in of itself to showcase, and, you know, having Rami Malek, who up until that point had no dialogue, and then he finally unzips his mouth. You know what? It was a great moment. Like, I, I was starting to think, Rami Malek didn't need to be in this movie. What the hell? And then he has the scene that he has, and, and you're like, okay, fine. I can justify that, but still. Would you have missed it if it wasn't Rami Malek? It could Would have you been... have known if it wasn't Rami Malek? His it... eyes did a lot of good acting. I enjoyed his first two cameos of being a little awkward yeah. boy with his, his eyes. Like, I no every dollar spent on him was worth his expressions to me. And I think with uh you know we we kept wondering okay who exactly is uh Jack Quaid playing uh with, with you know the scientist with the bongos and at one point I said to Andrew after before we saw Barbie I said to him I'm almost certain he's playing Richard Feynman because Richard Feynman was a physicist originally from New York. Um, this Ken plays the bongos. <laughs> you know, Feynman was originally from New York. He worked at Caltech. I know that he had a van with a bunch of blank on the exact term for what these equations were, but he had like a very noticeable van that I think Caltech still owns as like a kind of memorial to him. In a lot of ways, he was a popularizer of science in the same kind of way as Carl Sagan. Very bright very accessible, very funny. I know um, he wrote two autobi well, two yeah, two memoirs, autobiographies. One sort of talking about his trajectory working in science and you know all the little weird misadventures and quirky events of his life because he was he was a character like he really was a goofy guy and kind of a hippie. And then later in life, one of the last things he had to do was he was I think brought in to investigate the Challenger disaster and basically explain how did this happen and he was the one who said it was the o-rings that you know hardened and shriveled up in the cold florida morning and that's what led to the shuttle exploding so uh, and also I, I complained to drew that wow you know you got three jewish scientists in this movie and not any of them, none of them are played by jews what the hell they're all well jack quaid's an american but you know not einstein and, and oppenheimer uh, I think as well with Oppenheimer, what made it stand out in a way that I think it, it fleshed out his character and it made the story just that much more engaging for me was just talking about the political side of Oppenheimer. Even though they they leave him a little bit gray and I feel like there are times where he is a little bit distant in terms of why he's got any sympathies with left-wing, you know, any kind of left-wing views. Um, similarly... I still don't really get why he had the extramarital affair. Like, that's the thing with movies now is they're like, oh, I just have to look at them really creepily and they're going to look at me back and then cut nudity and sex scene. And it's like, that's not how any of this stuff works, unless that's just how horny people were back in the 1930s. He was I don't a player. Um, I am reading the book and, like, he's a player. He got around and it's funny because... He was an awkward boy scientist, but he had Riz. So, so like, I feel like when the, when Killian Murphy is Riz just Benheimer. like, 
<laughs> yeah. Like when Killian Murphy is just like, oh, those scenes were so important. I'm like, from that sense, yes, but you're right about Nolan doesn't convey that. You want a bomb? He's got the A bomb right in his pants. Oh my god. Boom, baby. Uh-huh. Explosions everywhere. A flash of bright light and it's all over. Oh god. Um what do y'all think about the um the apple mm-hmm. scene? Because I know I think his was it his grandkids like shouldn't have put that in there. Something like that. His 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 it's family is issue over it. I mean, so... I didn't know about it beforehand, so I was kind of taken off guard when it was, you know, portrayed in the movie. Um, I don't know, Andrew. Yeah. Do you have any insight on this? Reading the book? <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's a debated incident. Like they they are not sure if Oppie exaggerated it to his friends, but he he only told his friends, and like he didn't take it out of a guy's hand. I think like in real life, he like went back like right afterwards and like threw it out or something, but um, definitely a little more dramatized in the movie, but it's like a disputed incident. They also don't relay that back into the rest of the movie. Like there's no repercussions for that. I feel (laughs) so. I'm just like, what's the point? That was sort of how I felt too. Like I, I really did wonder why did it need to be here to establish that he has guilt? I mean, at the end of the day, I can live with it maybe taking it out would have helped with the runtime. Like, you know, I mean, I I think there still could have been an interesting way to introduce Niels Bohr, who definitely, you know, I, um, I would say, I mean, I, I unfortunately still have not read American Prometheus, but I will say one book that I feel like would also help uh, anybody that's interested in what, uh, yeah, interested in watching Oppenheimer, I'm trying to not get my media confused here, would be to read Walter Isaacson's Einstein biography, just because that definitely establishes some, a lot of the names that you hear, Niels Bohr, or Werner von Braun, uh, actually no, von Braun I don't think is mentioned, uh, Heisenberg is mentioned, he's seen in the film, so, um, Werner Heisenberg is what I think I'm thinking of, anyway, yep. and I know Oppenheimer, pops up it's been a while since i've read that book but i'm i'm i mean of course he comes up it's what everything that transpired with einstein writing to fdr basically saying like do not turn my science like the stuff that that made me who i am don't turn that into a doomsday weapon and the way that it was all handled from the standpoint of oppenheimer's determination for the bomb being made his determination to you know, race against the Nazis, and then even past Hitler's suicide, like, okay, we still need to do this, we still need to get this done. I think all of that was handled very, very well, and I also think that the transition phase from when he goes from being how how I fell in love with the bomb, whatever the subtitle of Dr. Strangelove is, yeah. to completely regretting every second of the Manhattan Project, I thought was done remarkably well. And the turn at the end, and especially how everything wraps up, you know, with the the confirmation hearing with RDJ's character. It did get to a point after the bomb dropped, after the Trini- uh, Trinity test, where it was like, okay, where do you go from here? Because you don't show the bombing of Hiroshima or Nagasaki, so what do you do? And you do have to sort of turn back around and say, okay, we need to wrap up sort of the... Um, rehabilitation of his image thanks to other scientists also thanks to lyndon johnson who that was the most ai inspired lyndon johnson i've ever seen it's like somebody said okay let's 
what would Lyndon Johnson look like if he looked more like spaghetti, you know, or he was made out of spaghetti? And it was like the, like the face was there and the glasses were there, but there was something just so uncanny with the actor they picked that I remember just looking at him and being like, I know that's LBJ, but what am I looking at? Um, and, and I know, Drew, you got a laugh out of this um, in the theater when I brought it up. And, Matt, I don't know what you're going to think, but uh, the moment where they're going to the confirmation hearing, it all wraps up, it doesn't go Robert Downey Jr.'s way, and Alden Ehrenreich, Han Solo, is like, you know, oh yeah, we had all these holdouts, including, you know, some guy from Massachusetts, uh, Kennedy. And I'm sitting there, and I do the Spongebob, like, stance, you know, because I'm looking around thinking this whole movie theater, this whole fucking movie theater is gonna like freak out and you know it's gonna be thunderous applause and not a friggin clap and i'm only saying that because i'm i'm here and i know if it was in california it'd be an entirely different story yeah. but it was a funny moment <laughs> yeah the first showing i went to that you got some more reaction you know when okay. you get to hear that buzz in the crowd so yes um not not maybe not the uh, boston common crowd or you know tough, tougher crowd i guess but it was funny. Like, I, I love how the internet's joking. Like, he teased JFK like it was the Joker at the end of Batman Begins, you know? <laughs> or it's just like, oh, yeah. it's the beginning of the uh, uh, North, of, what is it? American History Cinematic Universe or something like that. So <laughs> it's like, when it comes to that, I'm just like, he definitely, like, it's definitely like a little nod. Um, but yeah, of course, everything comes back to Massachusetts. But uh, yeah, there's a, a few other things about the movie that are, you know, I didn't realize the first time that I'm seeing criticisms and I think they're valid. So mm -hmm. first there's the whole debate about, do we show the Japanese people, not even just the bombs themselves, but like, do you show, there wasn't a single Japanese person shown. Um, and then the other thing was that you also didn't talk, they didn't also talk about the effects that the test had in New Mexico. I know it's a yeah. very small audience, but in New Mexico, they're apparently showing like a disclaimer before the movie from a, a group of scientists saying like the effects are still being felt, yada, yada. But like hmm. um, the the radiation aspect, even they do talk about how the radiation was going to kill people, but it also isn't like played up enough. Um, and, you know, how, going back to what you mentioned about his thoughts of like the stars and like space and like the sparks, the atomic reaction um, I think there could have been more of that to kind of help explain or, you know, show science happening. That that was actually a similar complaint that I had with the theory of everything, was that I feel like, you know, you have one great moment where I think he's, Hawking is like trying to put a sweater on over, in front of a fireplace, and he has like this moment where he feels, it's almost like he's looking at either a star exploding or particles of matter, you know, hitting each other and... With that movie and with this, there could have been more of that to really flesh out what you see. And you get glimpses of it, and that's where the sound really, really helps. Especially when they're talking about um, different uh, ignition methods for the atomic bomb. Where yeah. they're like, you know, what if we do it like this? What if we do it like that? And it definitely helped that I watched, um, weeks ago, I watched like a 40-something minute video about Oppenheimer that did talk about the mechanics within the atomic bombs um shout out to the cynical historians video on that um but yeah Aren't i mean all I historians just inherently cynical though <laughs> well they should be uh i think um 
yeah let's see what the physicists say about this movie because they did take shots at them for being you know pompous and arrogant well i think based on photos that i've seen floating around the internet i sound like a crazy person but i know that since interstellar uh nolan's had some kind of a relationship with kip thorne who you know popular physicist he was friends with einstein uh, einstein jeez Hawking, Stephen Hawking, and I know there's a photo floating around of Kip Thorne with Killian Murphy as in full Oppenheimer getup and makeup. Um, and I should point out, too, it's so scary looking at Killian Murphy and how much he really does look like Oppenheimer throughout the film. I mean, not necessarily in the face, but certainly with his gauntness, his hair, and even sometimes with his face. Like, he is the spitting image of, of J. Robert Oppenheimer. And everyone else in the film, for the most part, I mean, yeah, when Matt Damon shows up, it's like, okay, it's, it's Matt Damon with a mustache. <laughs> um, and, you know, Robert Downey Jr., I mean, I don't know. I think for your, your average moviegoer, they're probably going to lose him in his character. But I, because I am who I am, it's like, oh, it's Robert Downey Jr., I think this is probably his best performance of the last 20 years that isn't Iron Man. So, I I mean, just because I think now when people identify Robert Downey Jr. in a movie, it is this idea that, you know, he is the he is a, a rogue kind of good he's a rogue good guy and in this like for the most part, he's not really that great of a person. And by the end of his confirmation hearing, like, I don't know about you guys, but I was sort of on Alden Ehrenreich's side where I was like, yeah, guess what? It's not going to play out for you, my guy. You know, maybe you're not the coolest guy in the room or whatever. Um, not to keep jumping around too much with Oppenheimer, but I will say that I think the storytelling aspect, I appreciate the fact that in on one hand, it has echoes of Dunkirk's storytelling. It's definitely not even remotely exact, but it there's shades of it. You know, I, I at least like the fact that this is probably the most, other than, like, his, his other typically lean, uh, linear movies like the Dark Knight films or uh, Tenet, I guess, to a degree. Actually, no, not like Tenet. Um, the Dark Knight movies, Inception, The Prestige. Not even Inception, because Inception, it's all over the place. The Dark Knight, Insomnia, there we go, that's what I meant. And also, um, yeah, The Prestige, just because I feel like he, do, he loves playing with time, and, you know, he's said it in interviews recently that, you know, he always has some kind of time element in his films. This was as evocative of really any other film out there when it came to handling the biography of one person and also covering points in their life in a way that made it all coherent. It's a far cry from the Jobs movie with Michael Fassbender. It actually is kind of similar. It's not even that far off. Everyone does a killer job with their performances. Um, yeah, there's a lot of people in it that I feel like you could have just had anybody else play them. But you know what? The thing that I, I also loved about this movie, and it's the one thing that I like really... I mean, outside of like, you know, Killian Murphy's performance and like something that I really, really loved was the fact that because you had all this star power attached to it, and especially the moments that are in black and white, I couldn't help but think to myself, this feels like a Cold War thriller in a way. The the like the ones we would like I don't know, um 
what's the one like 12 I think it's called 12 days in May like there it was very evocative of some of those films from the 50s and the 60s that are remembered because it's not Ozzy and Harriet America it's we want to show you what the worst case scenarios are when it comes to this cold war that we're fighting and this movie did that in a way that I don't think any other movie in recent memory has accomplished other than it's not a Cold War thriller necessarily, but like I had a moment where I thought this feels like a, like it could be in the same world as um, Good Night and Good Luck. So yeah. I, I mean, mean, even looking at it today with all like the shit that's going on in Russia and Ukraine yeah. right now, it's like, oh shit, we might be going through this again when we gonna get blown up and shit. So I'm not saying that was one of the causes of my anxiety over the past few months, but it may have been one of the causes of my anxiety for the past few months. Yep. <laughs> it's hard to not think about last year with everything that transpired at the start of the invasion of Ukraine where, and I, you know, I, I've made light of this in the past and I even mentioned it at work recently and I did the accent, but like Putin literally said, you know, he literally said, if you if you enter war, we blow up planet. Kind of was in the back. Of, that was in the back of my mind when the end of Oppenheimer takes place, and I saw it from a mile away. That the scene early on where it's in black and white and Einstein walks away looking all unhappy, as if he's mad at Oppenheimer, and then they play it again. I mean, it plus like you see it in all the trailers. So if you see something in the trailers and then you sit through ninety nine percent of the movie and the movie's almost over, you can almost guarantee that whatever you missed in the trailer is the end of the movie. Not necessarily. Um, I know. Not, it, There's plenty of movies movie. where they just throw unused footage in the trailer. Yeah. It's it's a Rogue problem because a lot of people get mad about it. You even sued because Anna de Armas was in a, a trailer for a movie wasn't in the actual movie, so. Yeah. Yep. So, um... So, yeah. But, um... I mean... if Like, I don't know. I mean, let me go back to my Nolan movie ranking list, what have you. <laughs> um, so I'll just go off of, all, I'm going off of all the ones that I have seen. So Memento and following, unfortunately are not on this list. How have you not seen Memento? God damn it. It is a I, national treasure of a movie. I don't know. I believe me. It's been on my Netflix queue in the past. I just, honestly, next time it's available somewhere, I will watch it. Um, Man, if you were still in California, I have the, the Blu-ray. Damn it. This is the order that I have all of his movies so far. Excluding Oppenheimer, I will try and have an idea where I would put it by the end of the list. So at the very top, not to be contrarian, Insomnia. Just because it's a great thriller, it's before Nolan got big, and it's hard to beat the star power of Al Pacino, my guy. hoo And Robin Williams, uh, R.I.P. to a real one. And then, this is going to probably sound cliche, but I did a lot of thinking with this one. The Dark Knight would have to be second. I love Batman Begins, which is third on the list. And at one point, I loved it more than The Dark Knight. The thing, though, is that it it is a very simple... Like, it gets to a point where it does become kind of a simple origin. Um, and maybe I'm, I'm jaded a little bit because of The Batman. Like, that movie feels so much more complex and different compared it's just with that better movie i know and i i honestly love it more than i love batman begins um i have the dark knight rises after that i'm sorry i'm a sucker for it i love bane the the movie is flawed but i can still love it after that i have the prestige 
again, that's over another... the prestige. Really? You put Dark Knight Rises over prestige? There's moments in the prestige that I do feel like go a little bit long and get a little sappy and you get to a point okay. where you're like, That's okay, fair. let's move it along here, Mr. Nolan. And even when I like when I was younger and I didn't realize who Nikola Tesla was, like that was a scene where I was like and now okay. that's like my favorite part of the movie because again it's Hugh Jackman going to the mountains to meet Gollum and uh, David Bowie like it's it's amazing it's it's oh love it Inception comes after that I still I still can get a kick out of it but like its star has faded at one point in time it would have been at the top of the list I I don't know I just I I feel less invested in it the older I get. After that is Dunkirk, which I feel like I need to watch again because I've only seen it once. And it was good, but I, it didn't, like, blow my pants off. Um, Interstellar, which I was very disappointed in. Another movie I probably need to revisit. And then at the very bottom, of course, is Tenet. Um, <laughs> if I need not say more with that. There's a whole episode with Andrew that we've, you know, talked about with regards to Tenet. I will say I think if Oppenheimer had to go anywhere on here... It's, it's tough because I think, again, it, it is, it's handling with his time obsession in a way that is very stark and different from a lot of his other films. It is a very accessible movie, which Tenet was not, and even Inception for some people, it, it was not. At the same time, the performances are honestly unlike any that I've seen from any of his other movies. Yeah, there's the whole crying scene, love, Merv, from Interstellar, but like... The fact that that's been memefied the way it has, I mean, eh. So, for now at least, I might have to put Oppenheimer, and and part of it is also the the runtime. Like you, it's an epic. We don't really get epics anymore. What also tied everything together with it feeling like a political thriller from the Cold War era, and having the star power is that. A lot of those movies from back in the day had a ton of star power behind them. And even if it was bit roles, like, I mean, for goodness sake, it's more of a comedy, but like Dr. Strangelove. James Earl Jones is in that movie. Almost no one ever talks about it. It's like, Darth Vader's in this, people. Hello. Also, half the cast is played by Peter Sellers, but that's a different story. But I think for right now, I might put Oppenheimer up top. It might be just prematureness and newness uh but i probably have to put oppenheimer at the very top of the list and and probably it's probably his best movie shoot me down i don't care <laughs> i'm more critical of nolan than i am a fan of him so yeah. my ranking is memento at the top then prestige then following or no memento prestige oppenheimer then following then everything else can i haven't seen insomnia yet but then everything else can go eat shit and Interstellar has some redeeming moments because I I did like it is it did get very emotional I think but everything else he's done can do eat shit. Insomnia is a very simple movie, but it it really I is think driven... he's best when he's at his simplest. Honestly, yeah. I think he is. I think when he he like I said he gets too far up his own ass and he thinks he's a god. When Christopher Nolan's telling a simple well not simple but when he's telling a straightforward story, he is absolutely an amazing filmmaker. Yeah. Like me Memento is not a simple story. It's done very with very complex editing and you have to really be paying attention to to fully get the impact of the story. But when it hits at the end, it's so good. 
So yeah, um, I think this was a good return to form for him. Not a fan of his Batman at all. I will say that cinematically, Dark Knight is a masterpiece. Story-wise, eh, didn't really like it. It is like Heat. Like, if you watch Heat, it's basically... The, the Dark Knight is Heat, but instead of Al Pacino, it's the Joker. Or yeah. rather, it's Robert De Niro, and instead of Batman, it's Al Pacino. Yeah. Joker! I'm here to arrest you. Get over here! She's got a great ass! And you got your head all the way up it, Harvey! Oh boy. Um, you guys forgot to put Man of Steel on the list. Just kidding. Um, <laughs> I so I, I I have seen Memento and Insomnia. I actually think Memento is good. I've seen all his movies except for Following and Interstellar. Um, but as far as where I'd put it, I think Tenet. I, I'm glad we could agree that it's down there, it's bottom. And the thing is, it's like compared to other movies, it's not even like that bad. But like, I need to see it again. Um, the Batman trilogy. Dark Knight, obviously. I think his best movie is probably The Dark Knight still. I mean, I, I would put The Prestige up there. Um, I think Oppenheimer is like top three or top four. I mean, I think, yeah, it's so funny how Inception just got so dated so quickly. Is it Joseph Gordon-Levitt? Like, it, like what dated it so much? Because I don't know if it's like, it's a, it doesn't even feel like a TNT movie or like it's on like Pluto. It's like free now. Like, it does mm -hmm. whereas like the prestige if you see it on streaming you're like oh like you know feels special inception just got hyped to death but um i also think yeah. it's just that we got so sick of the inception sound yeah yeah i think that's it it, <laughs> it became a meme which killed like all of its coolness think of it this way too with that point in his career he was making movies back to back to back. I think there might be a little bit of a gap between Insomnia and Batman Begins. But then it goes from Batman Begins immediately to The Prestige, immediately to The Dark Knight, immediately to Inception, and then even more immediately The Dark Knight Rises, if not overlapping. So I, I think I like this period now where he's free from Warner Brothers, aren't we all? You guys said it perfectly. It is Oppenheimer's return to form. Because I, I think he's been a bit of a stinker, again, in my opinion, since roughly around The Dark Knight Rises and Inception. You know, I mean, it, it's... It sucks. Because, again, like, he... Like, and I was one of those big fans, and now I'm much more of a critic. And I'm just kind of relieved that I wasn't let down for, what, a fourth time? Okay, so... Uh, we did pause to get some food and drinks, but we've now done one half of Barbenheimer, and uh, we've got a special guest with us, but Andrew, very quickly, immediate thought before you give away something that you'll probably mention on the show about... Just go ahead. Long but fun. Patience. But it's up to you if it's worth the payoff, but it was fun. Uh, it was really fun. Uh, well, I, I don't know if I'd call it fun necessarily but definitely worth a watch uh definitely too long which that's coming from the guy that was like oh the batman was perfectly timed as <laughs> i mean so gentlemen we've talked kenuff or kenuff about uh oppenheimer now uh let's go party with barbie uh don't worry, guys. Hey, it, it, it was it was fun, you know. I, I and obviously, you know, I saw it both times with my wife, and 
you know, like uh, it's funny because you know it's very. We can get into the whole Jason Aldean argument related to this movie, or no conservatives, but hate this movie. You know, too woke, but it's a fun ride. I think you know it's refreshing to see Mattel allow some more jokes that you know Transformers might not let allow against its own toys. I know Transformers isn't meta like that, but I do God feel like Hasbro. I feel like um, Mattel. If this is Mattel's forced foray into this, like you know this is promising for the mattel cinematic universe whatever but it was you a know fun that the movie. mattel that's actually coming though you know right yeah it's real. making an uno movie they're making a poly pocket <laughs> movie they're making he-man which okay i'm i'm up for it and a bunch of other things but it's yeah. coming yeah and it's like i never thought I'm like what are they gonna do for a transformers movie i wasn't familiar with the cartoon though but yeah like, they're gonna make it work i know like how are they supposed to make barbie work it ended up I, I think with Barbie, fun ride, uh, fun look, a fun real look at feminism and patriarchy. Uh, really well done. I think I did see complaints that it's too vulgar for kids, but I think they did pretty good. You know, it's PG thirteen. A... goddammit. it. <laughs> yeah, but you, you of course you had moms just being like Barbie, but it was. <laughs> I think it was well written. I you know there definitely was some issues, but. Uh, it was a really good effort on all parts. And that's a really easy way to sum it up. I think there was some things that, you know, you could tell where the studio stepped in. Like, we need to have the CEO plotline, like the Will Ferrell plotline. I was like, not a huge fan of, but he had his moments. But otherwise, Barbie's arc also ended kind of weird. But all throughout, I think it was a, a strong showing. And it just reminded mainstream audiences that Greta Gerwig and Noel Baumbach, like, Hey, they've been here. Love or hate their movies, they at least know how to put something together. And it's funny that I feel like this is, you know, both of their most mainstream efforts. And it's just like, oh man, like this is what happens when you get like, I don't even want to call them like, you know, art filmmakers, but like this is what happens when you get people who uh, are actually good movie makers. You know, like could you imagine if like somebody else directed this like so or wrote it so i thought it was really fun i i I don't know what else to break into but fun time man so to emphasize how stark of a difference it was between both films in terms of taylor's experience because she was along with myself andrew and rachel and i have audio sort of interspliced in this episode not a lot but a little bit to sort of capture her first out of the theater reaction. I don't know why I'm doing the Obi-Wan ghost hand thing. Don't give in to hate. She, in the last hour of Oppenheimer, was checking her phone. She was like, there's an hour left. Oh my god. And I I felt, I, I, believe me, I did feel bad. But I was also, like, and even I was, again, I was a little bit like, okay, I was just going to wrap up. Taylor, what did you say when we, when you walked, or when the movie ended? I said, thank God. (laughs) I'm not going to lie, okay? I sat through two semesters of physics lab in undergrad and two semesters at a graduate level. And you would think that that would be the worst moment of my life. No, I'm just kidding. Honestly, it was very comparable. That is all. Thank you. Okay. I don't know if you want to introduce yourself to listeners. I am Taylor. Lover of the arts, friend of Hello Kitty. <laughs> My favorite color is rainbow sparkles. Which is why I'm a little more apt to seeing the Barbie movie, but I 
I took one for the team and I sat through the entirety of Oppenheimer. All right. And now we're going to cross on over. Just another lovely day in Boston, even though some shady stuff happened that elsewhere in the city that, you know, was not so great. We sit down. The atmosphere in the, aud in the audience was, I'll put it to you this way, with Oppenheimer, for one thing, you had a lot of people that were just there to see it. You had people that were clearly there dressed up, you know, to the point where they all, you had people that almost looked like they were Amish dressed up to see it. And then straight up admitted to Taylor, you know, all four of us, Andrew, I think we've forgotten to mention this, all four of us did go representative of three of us with Barbie, one of us with Oppenheimer. Um, you can probably imagine who the one was for Oppenheimer. Um, <laughs> and... You know, at one point, Taylor turns around to look at the people dressed up for Oppenheimer, and they were like, oh, we're going to be at the 7.30 show, and we have a costume change. We go to Barbie, and the atmosphere is totally different. It's a smaller theater, same AMC, a ton of couples, a ton of, you know, younger women, and then also just a ton, especially next to Taylor and I, and in the same row that Andrew and Rachel were in. Older, like, I don't know, probably women in their 50s, maybe early 60s. So, like, you know, my mom's age. And just had a gay old time. Like, they were so into this movie. And when I look at this movie, like, the, you know, when we walked out of the theater, the first three words out of my mouth were Albert Camus' Barbie. Uh, walked out of second half of Barbenheimer. <laughs> True. Thoughts. Awesome. I fully support women after seeing Barbie. <laughs> and Ken's too. And Ken's too. Simultaneously the most capitalist movie I've seen and also the most existential that I've seen in a very long while. Lego um, movie. The questioning about death, that immediately had me thinking to like, you know, the myth of Sisyphus and the rebel and the stranger, you know, works by Albert Camus. And... When he wasn't, do, you know, reporting and, and talking about Algeria or the French underground during World War II, he was dwelling on these kinds of questions. And even though he hated people ever thinking he was a philosopher or an existentialist, definitely a very simple movie in some ways, but it was also so stark in how it kind of opened itself up to talking about things politically again talking you know talking about feminism patriarchy um it handled it in a way that i have never seen a mainstream movie talk about these subjects i never thought i'd live to see somebody called barbie a fascist i also can't believe that of the two movies it wasn't the world war ii movie that had somebody call be called a fascist it was friggin barbie you know if you grew up with barbie and you watched the whole opening and especially you know how she walks and how she's living in you know her dream house it is very evocative of everything that you know whether it's because of your mother whether it's because of your sister whether it's because of just the world it, it's like okay it's all re it's barbie but it's just a bunch of real people and then how they start diving into the real world uh you know la gets cameos not really even a, a the right phrase to use um it's part of the setting of the film it i don't know the movie did a very effective job at just presenting 
Barbie of all things in a way that I think no one anticipated. And, you know, yeah, I could have my, my sort of typical complaints about, like, you know, bi you know big business and, you know, IP and, and, you know, have some kind of, like, critique on, you know, at the end of the day, it's all about money and, you know, they can shove, you know, like, there's a lot of liberal thinking that does go into this movie that is very pro-capitalist, and that's th those are things that I'm a little about. But I can't take away what this movie means to so many people, and I can't take I can also can't take away you know to echo Drew's points like I can't take away that the writing for this was pretty damn good, you know like I was truly surprised at how it handled all these characters from Alan, who got all the laughs in the theater to Ken, who, there, there's shades of the Ryan Gosling that made me laugh my ass off from the nice guys, but I will say he's a little one-note. I think compared with other critics that I respect and admire that said he was one-note, I think I lean a little bit away from that. It's like he's a little bit one-note, but not enough that, like, he's a non-point in the film. And Margot Robbie's performance, I mean, what can I say? She was, like, the embodiment of Barbie from everything you can imagine with the character, everything you can imagine with how she looked. I mean, that's there's the joke in the movie about where she's crying and she's complaining about herself, and Helen Mirren, as the narrator, says, uh, note to the filmmakers, this is the worst scene to have done with Margot Robbie, of all people. Like, I'm pleasantly surprised that, you know, you can have these two movies that are pretty thoughtful, and they really are such friggin' polar opposites in terms of performances, in terms of tone. There's that part of me that sees all the little Warner Brothers references, including, I don't know, if, Matt, if you saw it, from the Mattel boardroom. There's, the, there's like a building right behind Will Ferrell's character, and you can just make out part of the Warner Brothers logo, and it says Warner Brothers Discovery. I don't know where the filming of this movie was in the process between... And Sarnoff's tenure as CEO versus David Zaslov's tenure, plus the merger with Discovery. There were little masturbatory, masturbatory moments like that that I was like, uh. It was a little bit like in The Flash when both Flashes have that moment just before the big fight where they go, where one goes, come on Barbie, and the other one goes, let's go party. And you're like, what the hell am I watching? I mean, it's and not as bad as, as Space Jam 2 is self-masturbatory. Oh. Oh, that movie oh. was a travesty. God, that was capitalism overload without like any of the heart, charm, existential meaning, or commercial success. Is this? this that was just clearly like, hey, we're Warner Brothers. Fuck you. We can make this movie. Pretty much. <laughs> Drew, you mentioned it earlier. The the, the Jason Aldean crowd. Um, I think it, it's so funny to me how they don't realize that what they're doing to Ken in this movie by making him kind of the backdrop, unwanted, like underpowered, is literally what movies have done to women since movies have been made. I mean, like pretty much all yep. media. Like they're so fucking caught up in their own bullshit that they can't, they don't realize that it's it's critical satire. The reason why it's so blatant and in your face is because it is making that point and not because it's just a <laughs> men suck kind of movie. They're not just thumbing their their faces at conservatives and manly values just because they can. No, it's 
it's a point about how women have been treated and valued as pretty much just set dressing for the entire time that women have been involved in anything at all. Like there's still the idea of the trophy wife somehow that still goes around. There's still the idea from conservatives that like women should only be in the home, that there are only certain jobs that are suitable for women. And you wonder why Greta Gerwig and Margot Robbie make this a point in the movie. Super tone deaf, you know, like no need to dive into the minds of the people opposed to this movie or the goddamn uh, reviews that are getting millions of clicks by certain people. But it was frustrating that, you know, you missed the point like you are what the movie's talking about. You know, like they're. It's been a long time since I've seen it. Well, okay. Like, what's the last time a mainstream movie had lines in it like, oh, the patriarchy still exists. We're just hiding it better. And I'm just like, I did not expect to hear that kind of stuff in the Barbie movie. You know, I figured there'd be some, I hate to even say, Rachel corrected me on this. It's just like, it's not a feminist movie, you know? It's not like it has a feminist agenda, as you were explaining, Matt. So it's just like, that's not necessarily what it was geared towards, but it must have caught a lot of people by surprise that it was this open and like upfront about it. But you know, that's what made it really impactful versus just another dumb toy movie. I think, I think some of the storyline does get confusing with Ken's transformation after Mojo Dojo Casa house, like when they lose the constitution and like, (laughs) I did love his douchebag face and it's just like, but at the end, like his, like I am Knuff, like it's funny, but it's just like, I almost didn't like understand like the message. I still had trouble on the second viewing. I, I think it's it's saying that because for, for the longest time, Ken's identity has been tied to Barbie. That I think that they were saying, like especially just looking at it as as a character perspective, like he is a sufficient character in itself, and his identity as Ken does not necessarily need to be tied to Barbie if he doesn't want it to be. Yeah, the fact that in in, in so many ways that like female characters are and like just women in general are tied to their whoever their partner is like you'll see people referred to as the wife of this person when it's like hey they have a sufficient career all on their own it's like for example if if you had amy poehler referred to as the ex-wife of uh will arnett excuse me she's amy poehler she has a a career on her own she's Mm -hmm. amy fucking poehler to the fact that she is enough of a person on her own whereas now ken is realizing that he doesn't need to tie his identity to being barbie's side piece that he can be just ken and that's fine that's what i think the whole i am kenuff is going for it it was a little abrupt i will absolutely agree with you they don't explore it in the movie so if you're not actually thinking about it you won't like it's gonna go over your head probably like the kids are never gonna get it the people who just went to see it as like a fun pink movie are never going to get it. So I I don't think they explored that idea well enough to get the payoff besides just being a funny sweatshirt and merchandising opportunity. But that's what I interpreted it as. The way that they wrap everything up with Ken in the movie, I think it's been a while since I've seen this movie I'm about to mention. So for all I know, I may be somewhat incorrect, but uh, having this character change with Ken, it's in some ways it's a little bit evocative of, uh, I think it's in Toy Story 3 where Ken is a bad guy and uh, it's it's sort of like you want to have a bit of a redemption for the character that isn't just like, oh, I, I, I've learned from my ways. Like You do want something a little bit more redeeming than just, oh, I'm not bad anymore. I 
respect the fact that they at least show him sort of have that realization of, you know, I can be myself. And with Barbie herself, it, it's similar in that, you know, she has her own acceptance of who she is. And, you know, it, the film definitely toys around with themes that we've seen from other films like The Matrix, um, the whole scene with the sh different shoes. I was sitting there and I was like, oh, I've seen this before. The beginning, you know, it's funny, Taylor and I had a conversation about 2001 A Space Odyssey the night before. She has never seen it. Um, I tried explaining it to her, and even I sounded ridiculous. Starting out the movie the way that it did with that homage, I thought was perfect. The way that people have responded to this movie, or at the very least, women and critics have responded to it. Um, and it's such a weird way to even phrase it. But, like, <laughs> I, I certainly think that it's, it's a good movie for the moment. It's arguably the right movie for the moment. Paired with Oppenheimer, I think it's a terrific watch. On one hand, going back to last week's discussion, seeing the movie definitely answers all the questions I needed answered with why conservatives were reacting the way they did. And while now I understand why they reacted the way they did, I still have no tolerance for their complaining because flip the it, genders, they would be they would be loving it. Like exactly. if this was if this was a Ken movie and, and Barbie was oppressed the entire time and, and, and in the end got her comeuppance, oh, they'd be jacking off in the theaters. <laughs> it'd be sticky and smelling like beer cans and barbecue and and you know you do you do see a lot of like those kinds of references where you know they've got uh, a president who is a black woman they have a supreme court that's all women they talk about the constitution they talk about democracy they talk about you know we're going to sort of reinstate our constitution and you know maybe we'll allow some kens to be on the supreme court no we'll just you know maybe one day like and I think playing with those things, even though I, you know, I can already hear somebody like Ben Shapiro be like, oh, oh, well, if you want to have this, this perfect movie that's all about feminism and equality, God. then why would you have them cut short? And it's like, well, they're, they're trying to make a point here, Ben. Shut up, you know. So it, it's, and I think the way that, and again, it's also a little bit laughable from the standpoint of, oh, they're trying to, like, reflect on America today. But we don't have a democracy, technically. So, yeah. It's fantasy land. It's a movie. It's friggin' Barbie, like I said last week. It's Barbie, people. Like, calm down. I will say, though, as well, that the final scene in the film, in <laughs> some ways, had shades of the end of The Flash, but I also thought it was pretty well done. Because um, I, I mean, it's, not ex thought... it's unexpected. You don't expect that that's what she's doing. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's set up like, okay, she's in the real world. She's decided she's going to stay there. I did think that that whole sequence with Ruth, the Barbie's creator, it was so wild to me to have a scene that introspective on Barbie and, you know, what does she want to do with her life after having been on this wild adventure where she's been exposed to the real world and exposed to just the awfulness of society and and you know overall this movie does showcase when you're a kid and you grow up with toys there is this perfect world that you live in and the older you get and the more jaded you get it's it's not a world it's not a world meant for toys and it's in a weird way it's, it is evocative of stuff like stuff talked about in some of the toy story movies of you know what is it like for such a, a simple idealized object like a toy what is it like when that toy's usefulness is for one thing kaput 
and what is it like when that toy is exposed to the real world? You know, even if the toy is is a fictional character that happens to be alive, you know, or at the very least looks like a human being, even if they don't have genitals, like Barbie and Ken claimed they don't. Um, so, which that was a great scene. You know, to end off the way that it did with Barbie having that scene with Ruth, which was very talking with the Oracle, and even even when she first meets Ruth, again more Matrix, having the movie end the way that it does, where she's going to see her gynecologist. I mean, yeah, that's... If you're trying to drive a point with this movie, you did a good job. And, you know, overall, Taylor was, like, squirming for a good chunk of the movie. She loved it. Taylor, you were mesmerized, right? You know, okay. <laughs> said it before, I'll say it again, absolutely dazzling. I laughed the whole time, but at the same time, I understood how much it exemplified the entire personification of the patriarchy and how it can be sort of intertwined with play and mm -hmm. it made me think like are gender roles assigned or are they given to us through creativity but i also really liked all the dance scenes <laughs> choreography was amazing i liked it a lot better than Oppenheimer. it was very pink it was a perfect payoff and well done so i i would definitely tell listeners if you haven't seen barbenheimer the sensation of the summer. Uh, I would say, I don't know why I turn into John Lovitz there. You gotta see Oppenheimer and you Bobby. Loved it. You love it. it. <laughs> I'm trying to make a pun. Just laugh at it. I, I love it, Bobbenheimer. Andrew, you said it from the get. Like, ha have it so that you have the dourness of Oppenheimer and then end with sort of the uplifting nature of Barbie. If you had to grade the two movies, what would you give them? Oppenheimer gets a 6.725 repeating. <laughs> Barbie will get a... Oh, I don't know. This is hard. I can't just give it a perfect 10. Because that's Ken. It's true. 9.97. That's basically a 10. No. There's two six things. Three. Three six things. Okay. Uh, what do you What do you think? What do you give I, them I for still, numbers? I still got to think about it for a bit. I will say I think the creativity in both of them, like, giving you, I'll put it this way, giving you something that is unlike anything else you'll see right now. That's fair for both. That's that fair. score I'll make very, very high. Like, I'll, that's, I'm at least giving an eight. Okay. Um, Here comes a bunch of motorcycles. Yeah, there's, oh, geez. And that's, all right. say right now would be uh, Albert Camus Barbie uh, the existentialist hit of the summer and uh, yeah who would have thought that the movie that uh, wasn't set in World War II was the one that had a quote unquote fascist in it anyway I will say this I think both movies are watch uh, rewatchable I, I wouldn't say there's something they're movies I'm going to be like watching every other month they were worth the price for admission they are rewatchable. I really don't like the fact that 
now movie studios are trying to capitalize on Saw Patrol or whatever. Like, now now we're in this world where, oh, Barbenheimer, oh, both movies were such a success. Now we got to do another one. Oh, what if, it's what not if we had, like, happen. What, if, what if we had, like, a Pokemon movie, but then we also had, like, uh, 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 Human centipede. What could that be like? You know, it's like just the human get over yourselves. Like, no, let's just keep making movies, and and for the most part, let's just keep making better movies. But also to start off with, let's pay the writers and actors uh, with a friggin' livable wage. How about that? Fine, you can't say that, or David Zossoff's gonna come and snipe you out in the night. Hey, you know what? I don't work for. I I never worked for that. He's listening. Ever, so he's listening, Ryan. Andrew, final final thoughts. Barbenheimer altogether was worth the hype. I recommend you see it in the order that Ryan had just suggested. Uh, see Oppie in any format, whatever. But just uh, know what you're getting into. But yes, yeah, so would do again. I've even told Rachel I'm ready to see Oppenheimer a third time, and she thinks I'm a psychopath. So <laughs> yeah, I, that that tells you what I think. Actually, before we do, before we do, stop everything um, with an A bomb. Uh, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> how are the trailers for both movies? Trailers leading into both movies, like before you saw both Oppenheimer and Barbie. Oh, I was playing Bubble Pop on my phone. <laughs> okay, that's what I was doing. Um, but just to wrap this up before I go stuff my face with pizza that is now getting cold. Um, if I could, I love both of them. I think that they deserve Oscar nominations for several different categories. Barbie for production design and maybe best original song. I would love to see I Am Kenuff go up against um, Peaches for best original song. Ooh. I think Oppenheimer can easily get best actor, best supporting actor, best actress, best supporting actress nominations for Emily Blunt, for um, RDJ, for Killian Murphy. Um, but to to quote, Rat, to paraphrase Ratatouille, one of the quintessential pieces of cinematic culture. Take Oppenheimer. It's good, right? Take Barbie. Also very good. But together, you got something whole different going on. And that is where I will leave it. Mars on Life is a podcast co-hosted by Sebastian Shug, Ryan Mancini, Andrew Martinez, and Matt Fernandez. If you like this episode, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite shows, as Mars on Life is available on Anchor, Radio Public, iHeartRadio, Audible, Stitcher, Spotify, and Podchaser. Find us on Instagram at Mars on Life Show to keep up with the latest news, episodes, and gratuitous updates on the Red Planet. Have a question, comment, or request? Email us at marsonlife at gmail.com, and we'll promptly get back to you. This show's artwork, titled Happy Mars, was drawn by Zachary Erbrick. Our show's regular intro and outro music is Space Explorers, by the one and only Kevin McLeod. Thank you for listening, and always remember, if you keep going, you'll make it to Mars.